Good morning to each and every one. I assume most of you have heard of, uh, of John Calvin. I won't ask for a show of hands. Uh, if John Calvin were, were alive today, he would be celebrating his 500th birthday uh, next month. And so there's a lot of hoopla going on right now, a lot of different celebrations in different places. There's a, there's a huge conference planned in Geneva, uh, Switzerland. If I had the time and money, I would, I would be there, but I have neither, so I'm not going. But uh, what makes uh, John Calvin uh, so important uh, today, 500 years after the fact, is, um, oh, it's difficult to qualify because his influence is felt in every sphere of Western society, politics, economics, every sphere of society has been touched by uh, John Calvin. Uh, theologically, obviously, extremely important, uh, probably the greatest biblical scholar and theologian God has ever given to the church. Uh, but personally, why, why I think Calvin is so important and what I, what I personally find so compelling about John Calvin is his piety, uh, his devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you may not know this, but John Calvin suffered from severe kidney stones uh, for which his doctor prescribed vigorous horseback riding. Giddy up. That wouldn't have been a problem in and of itself, except he also suffered with uh, terrible hemorrhoids, which would have made the horseback riding impossible. He suffered from a spastic colon, asthma, and gout. He suffered from severe indigestion. It was so bad that he could only eat one meal per day. He suffered from tuberculosis. On one occasion, he spit up so much blood that he had to spend the next eight months in bed. He suffered from debilitating migraines. In short, John Calvin was a physical Wreck, absolute physical wreck. Oftentimes the church elders carried him in a chair from his bed to the pulpit so that he could preach. Yet despite his physical ailments, he accomplished an unbelievable amount in his short, relatively short lifetime. He preached every other day. He carried on mass correspondence with Christian leaders uh, throughout the continent of Europe, he wrote numerous books, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which Rick wants us to read as a staff after the present book we're reading. I think it was Rick or maybe it was Brian. I can't remember now. One of them. But that Institutes, two volumes, actually represents only 6.88% of his literary output. I mean, the amount he wrote in that day and age is just massive. As one biographer has put it, Calvin was intense in the service of the Lord to whom he had given his heart fully. Let me repeat that. Calvin was intense in the service of the Lord to whom he had given his heart fully. Very few people, very few believers have attained to his intellectual stature very few believers have ever possessed his, his giftedness. But there have been many believers who have exemplified the same devotion to Christ. 
How do we explain those who have lived faithfully, prayed fervently, contributed sacrificially, served diligently, and suffered gloriously? There is only one explanation. They saw Jesus. Uh, They beheld the glory of God. In the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was compelling to the extent that they devoted themselves wholeheartedly to Christ. And and what I want us to do this morning, what I pray we are able to do this morning is to see the Lord Jesus, is to renew our devotion to him by seeing him as he reveals himself in his word. And to that end, we're going to return this morning to John chapter 12, where we were last Sunday. And you'll remember that as we as we approach John chapter 12, we've entered a a, a section, a section that that contains a sign. And we read about this sign in chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Uh, The Lord Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. This is the seventh in a series of seven signs beginning all the way back earlier in John when Christ turned the, the water into wine. It culminates in Christ, Christ's resurrection of Lazarus. And so we have this series of seven signs. And the seventh is recorded in the first 44 verses of chapter 11. So that's the start of this section. And then after the sign, we have a reaction. Chapter 11, verse 45. Through to chapter 12, verse 19, Caiaphas plots, Mary worships, and Judas simmers. And that takes us to the eighth verse of chapter 12. And then we have one final reaction or response beginning in verse 9 through to verse 19. We read these verses last Sunday. I did not have time to get to them, but basically in these verses, we read that the crowd follows. There's excitement. There's enthusiasm. Why do they begin to follow the Lord Jesus? We find the answer in verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. And so he raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany. Many of the Jews went straight to Jerusalem. Word spread The crowd begins to follow Christ. The crowd is ready for Christ as he enters Jerusalem, as the feast of Passover nears, and they're filled with this enthusiasm and excitement. But it's misplaced. They are not looking for a Savior to deliver them from sin. Uh, They are looking for a Savior to deliver them from Rome. And so the feast of Passover nears. Mark's Israel's deliverance from Egypt. This is what we read of in verses 9 through 19. And this crowd, as the Lord Jesus enters, cries, Hosanna, meaning give salvation, give victory now. But Christ rejects their notion of the Messiah by entering the city on a donkey. They aren't interested in what he is offering. Look at verse 37 of chapter 12. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. 
and the, son, the, the crowds, the crowd is not mentioned again until the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a sign, the first 44 verses of chapter 11, there is this fourfold response, Caiaphas plots, Mary worships, Judas, well, he just simmers as he beholds Mary worshiping Christ in such a lavish manner. And the crowd follows, but follows for the wrong reasons. And then beginning in verse 20 of chapter 12 through to verse 36, we have a discourse. And these are the verses we're going to meditate upon together this morning. And let me begin by reading them for you and follow along. And picture this scene in your mind's eye as it unfolds before us. Again, chapter 12, verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks or Gentiles. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what, by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Now, just before we get to the text in itself, just before we get to these verses, let me draw your attention to the fact that this is this is an extremely important passage of Scripture. All of Scripture is important. All of John's gospel account is important. Why do I say that this passage is of particular importance? Simply for the following reason. Of all that happens, of all that transpires between Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the Last Supper, and a great deal happens. You go and read the synoptics viewed together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you discover that a great deal happens from the time Christ enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey to the time he celebrates the Last Supper with his disciples. There are a number of things, a number of events that take place, but of all of those events, of all of those happenings, this is all that John mentions. 
This is the only event under the inspiration of the Spirit of God that he sees fit to record. Why? I think the answer is found in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, Gentiles. You see, John's gospel is for the world. When we read John, and as we study John, we must ever have that before, is that one of John's central messages, one of his central themes that he's seeking to get across to us, is that Jesus is not merely the Savior of the Jews, Jesus is the Savior of the world. So we have John the Baptist cry right in chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We have that great verse in John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We have the cry of the Samaritans in chapter 4, you are indeed the savior of the world. And this goes on throughout John's gospel account. He constantly uses this term world. He constantly uses the term all men. Why? Not as some have understood it, that John is speaking of all without exception. No, that's not John's point. John's point is primarily this, that Jesus is not merely the savior of the Gentiles, the Jews. He is the savior of the Gentiles, that is of the world. So we have this tremendous reminder of it here between his entrance into Jerusalem, his celebration of the Last Supper, what John is about to record at the end of chapter 12, the conclusion of Christ's public ministry, his rejection of the Jews. We have these Greeks, these Gentiles who come seeking Christ. And again, what a pointed reminder of Christ's ministry, of Christ's mission. Not this exclusivity for the Jewish nation, but for the world, for the Gentiles. And so an extremely portion of God's, important portion of God's word and of John's gospel account. Now, how we're going to approach it is very simple. If you kids have one of the clipboards or if you have the, the worship guide, the bulletin, you'll notice a very simple outline on it. There is a request, verses 20 through 22. An answer, 23 through, through 33, and then another question, and then a response. And so we're going to try to look at these verses under those four headings and seek to get our minds around what is happening here and then derive some lessons, some applications from the text. And so we begin with the request, verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, Gentiles is probably a preferable word there in the Jewish mindset. Anybody who wasn't a Jew was a Greek because of the, the, the Hellenization process. It's a loose word in reference to, to Gentiles, generally speaking. Notice three things about these Gentiles. First of all, their motive. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, the text doesn't say anything about their motive. No, their motive is actually found between verses 19 and 20. You see, between verses 19 and 20, what we read here, several days have elapsed. Several days have passed. What has happened during that time period? What has occurred during those days? Well, the Lord Jesus in Jerusalem has, has had running debates with the Pharisees and the Sadducees on a number of different issues. He, he, has, he has foretold the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. He has pointed to the last day, the day of judgment. And yet perhaps of most important for these Greeks, these Gentiles, is what? 
the Lord Jesus, during that time between verse 19 and verse 20, cleanses the temple. Do you remember all the rabble that had gathered in the temple and they had turned it into a marketplace and they were they, there they would change money, lend money, sell sacrifices, and they had just made the, the, the temple chaotic. Well, here's the thing we must keep in view. What portion of the temple, what part of the temple was it that Jesus cleansed? The outer court. The outer court is called what? The court of the Gentiles. These guys had seen something. Uh, These fellows had heard something. As the Lord Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey and as he enters the temple, they themselves were there to celebrate the the, the, the feast of Passover and they behold the Lord Jesus cleansing the court of the Gentiles. They hear his teaching and there is something compelling. They are drawn to this man. They want to know more about him. They want to understand who he is and why he is here. And so that is their motive. And notice, secondly, their approach. How do they approach Christ? Verse 21. So these came to Philip. Why Philip? I really don't have any idea why Philip. Perhaps the next statement sheds some light on it. Who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. It's interesting that John would mention that little detail here in this context because John has already spoken of Philip back in chapter 6. You remember the Lord Jesus puts Philip on the spot, 5,000 men plus women and children. How are we going to feed all these people, Philip? Well, John, if he wanted to mention where Philip was from, surely when he first mentions Philip in chapter 6, he would have said from Bethsaida in Galilee. But he doesn't mention it there, but he sees fit to mention it here in this context. So perhaps it is that Philip has some former contact or acquaintance with these Gentiles from that geographical region. We don't know for certain, but I think what's important is that they approach Philip. They don't go directly to Christ. They're not like the Sadducees and Pharisees, always in Christ's face, always challenging him, always seeking to debate and argue. But no, these Gentiles approach the Lord Jesus through Philip. And I think it says something of their humility, doesn't it? I want you to notice thirdly, not merely their motive and their approach, but their desire. Right at the end of verse 21. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, we've missed the wagon altogether. If we think what they mean by that is we just want a glimpse. We want to physically see him. I think they've probably already seen him in that sense. I mean, he's been in the temple every day. They've been there celebrating the the, the feast of Passover. Undoubtedly, they have seen him, seen him walking by, heard him teaching. No, there's something more to this request. We wish to see Jesus. And not merely an audience. It's not that they merely wish to sit in his his presence and ask him questions and have him answer questions. I think as we as as we move on in the verses and we see Christ's response, what what, what is notable is this. He doesn't grant an audience. He doesn't say, "Okay, Philip, Andrew, go get them, collect them, bring them here and they can see me and talk with me and ask me whatever they want. 
No, even the Lord Jesus perceives that there is more to their request that meets the eye. There is something going on here in the minds and hearts of these Gentiles, whereby they seek to discern who Christ is, why Christ is here. There is a craving in the soul that compels them to approach Philip and to ask Philip to go to Jesus on their behalf. We wish to see him. That is the request. Now, notice, secondly, as we move through these verses, that there's an answer. And as I just mentioned, the Lord Jesus doesn't say to Philip, Philip, go back, bring them here. Uh, The Lord Jesus gives a discourse. And so Christ's discourse, and this is very important for interpreting the verses, because you see the request sets the context for what Christ now says. What Christ now says is his answer to their request. We wish to see Jesus what does the Lord Jesus do? He preaches. And he gives this discourse beginning in verse 23. It goes all the way through, I believe, to verse 33. It's divided in two parts. The first part, verses 23 through 36. The second part, verse 27 through to verse 33. The theme of this discourse, very simple, the hour, the hour. So look with me at the first part of this discourse, Christ's answer or response to their request. Again, verses 23 through 26. The first thing the Lord Jesus does is this. He makes an announcement. Verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Makes an announcement. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, that little expression, the hour, it should twig something in your memory because we have seen it before a half dozen times in John's Gospel account. You go back to chapter 7, verse 30. You go back to chapter 8, verse 20. And what do we read in those instances and in other instances prior to this moment? We read that His hour had not yet come. Therefore, the Jews were unable to arrest him. You see, the Lord Jesus has an appointed hour, an hour established before the foundation of the world, an hour when he would glorify himself at Calvary's cross. And until that hour arrived, no one could touch him. The Jews could not arrest him. But now the Lord Jesus makes this announcement. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How? How is he to be glorified at this approaching hour? He tells us in verse 24 by way of a simile. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Extremely significant in an agrarian society. So as you, just as for, for, for a grain of wheat, you picture a grain of wheat on a living stalk. As long as that grain of wheat is on the living stalk, it will not bear any more fruit. It must be removed from that living stalk. It must be placed in the earth where it will die. And from that dead seed issues forth fruit. And the Lord Jesus is drawing a comparison. He's saying, likewise, similarly, in order for me to bear fruit, I must die. But you see, that will be my hour of glorification. 
That will be the hour at which the Son of Man is glorified, because you see, by dying I will bear much fruit, by my death I will give life to my people. And by virtue of giving life to my people through my death, I will receive all the glory and honor. And so he makes this this tremendous announcement concerning his approaching death. And how he is to be glorified through his death. But having having made an announcement, the Lord Jesus does something else in verse 25. He utters a command. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now the simile in verse 24 applies to the Lord Jesus, his death, that just as a grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die in order to bear fruit, so too the Son of Man must die in order to bear fruit. But the simile carries over into verse 25, where he now utters this commandment, look, in order for my followers to bear fruit, in order for those who come after me, To be fruitful in order for those who come after me to enjoy abundant life, to inherit eternal life, they too must die. Look with me again at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Two different words for life. In verse 25, two different words in the Greek, that is. The Lord Jesus is saying that I must hate my life. That's one term in the Greek that refers to the the soul, my being, my personality. I must hate that in order to gain zoe, another word in the Greek for life, abundant life, eternal life, life in Christ. In other words, I must die. I must die. Die to self. My rights. My ambitions. My needs. My desires. In order to gain abundant life in Christ. George Mueller, a German, lived in the 19th century, established four or five orphanages in Bristol, England, I believe it was. Wrote the following in his journal. As a young man, I had a great many ambitions, but there came a day when I died to all those things. And I said, henceforth, Lord Jesus, not my will, but thine. And from that day, God began to work in and through me. Christ utters a command. The third thing he does in this first part of his discourse is he mentions a reward. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. How? I think the answer perhaps is found in 2 Timothy 4, 7, where Paul says, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 
And so here come these Gentiles. We wish to see Jesus. And Christ responds firstly by making an announcement, uttering a command, and mentioning a reward. And then we enter the second part of his response, his discourse, beginning in verse 27, right through, I think, more or less to verse 33. And Christ declares right there at the outset of verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. Troubled. Terrasso, I think, in the Greek. Troubled. The word means to, to agitate, to, to stir up. Uh, years ago, I was preaching at a youth conference in Kilkenny, Ireland, and we stayed in the home of, of missionaries. The, the fellow's name was, was David, actually from, from New Jersey. I stayed in their home, and, and one morning, uh, David and I and one of his daughters went out for a, a walk in the countryside. Uh, beautiful. Took your breath away. Uh, the green fields and hills, the, the vegetation, wonderful. And the sun starting to come up and burn the vapor and the dew and the mist away. And not the slightest of, of, of any breeze or movement, perfectly still. And the three of us went for this walk and we came to a small pond, small lake, and there was this old footbridge that went back centuries made of made of stone, and we walked across it, David and I, and I was just basking in the silence and in the tranquility all around us, and all of a sudden, splash! I turned around, and there was this little girl with a toothless grin as she was throw, began to throw these rocks off the bridge into the water. And what had been like a mirror, tranquil, peaceful, pristine, all of a sudden, the ripples and the splashing, the agitation. That's the idea behind this verb. Uh, we find it, interestingly enough, for the first time back in chapter 5. Think quick. Chapter 5. The pool of Bethesda. That when the waters were agitated, stirred up, the sick, the ill would enter the water in hopes of being healed. We find it three times. John uses it on three occasions in reference to Christ. He uses it in chapter 11 when he tells us that Christ was troubled. Why? As he beheld Mary weeping. That he was agitated. Stirred up in his soul. We find it in chapter 13. Where again we read that the Lord Jesus is troubled. Why? as he contemplates Judas's treachery and the fact that he will be betrayed at the hand of a friend. We find it thirdly back here in chapter 12, where the Lord Jesus himself declares, Now my soul is troubled. I do not have time to go down this road this morning. I apologize for that, but let me just... Give it here for what it's worth. You meditate upon it this afternoon. But if you're not awestruck by the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the penny isn't dropping, folks. The humanity of Christ. And how he is troubled as he faces that grief and sorrow experienced in Mary as a consequence of her brother's death. How he is moved and troubled. Anguish of soul. As he contemplates what Judas will do, 
Oh, friend, we, we have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. If you do not derive encouragement from that, I have nothing else to give you, friends. That we have a God who is man indeed. We have a God, a Savior, who is, who is like us and who empathizes and sympathizes with our weaknesses, with our troubles and with our struggles. And knows these better than we know them. And knows us better than we know ourselves. If only we would cast our cares and burdens upon him. He's a great high priest who is able to draw nigh and to strengthen and to help. And to give this inner strength by the spirit of God that we so desperately require in these moments of need. But I apologize, no time for that this morning. we got to move on. But you take that. John 11, John 12, John 13, read them. Look for the three references. Well, you know where the one is here in John 12. Search out the other two. And pray over them. Pray that the Spirit of God would give you great comfort as you see we have a glorified Savior, a man who stands in heaven. And who lives forevermore to make intercession on our behalf. The Lord Jesus is troubled here in this particular instance. Why? Why is he troubled? Because his hour is coming. What's so troubling about his hour? Two things. He's about to take man's sin upon himself. And man's sin is utterly repugnant to his nature. And secondly, he is about to take God's wrath upon himself. And God's wrath is utterly repugnant to his person. And so he is troubled, just as he was, remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is troubled as he contemplates his approaching hour. Look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. What does he ask? And what shall I say? I'm in anguish of soul as I contemplate my hour that is but days away. As I contemplate the fact that I am about to become sin for sinners. As I contemplate the the reality of, of this relational break with my father and bearing my father's wrath. What shall I say? Two choices. Two choices. The first, verse 27. Shall I say this? Father, save me from this hour. Make it go away. I know we entered into an eternal covenant. I know before the foundation of the world, we covenanted together to manifest the glory of our grace by saving this people who would eventually become my bride. I'm having second thoughts. I'm changing my mind. Make it go away. Is that what I should pray? Father, save me from this hour. No. Look at the rest of verse 27. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. He's compelled by his desire to do his father's will. He is compelled by his love for us. And this is the purpose for which he has come into the world. And so despite the fact that he is troubled, he is determined to go to his hour and embrace his hour. We may, brothers and sisters, we may shrink. From an experience that we're still determined to undergo. I've had surgery on both my knees. And prior to both surgeries, I was, oh, just a little troubled, agitated, stirred up. 
But I was determined to go through with the surgery. Why? Because I understood that the benefit of the surgery outweighed any trouble or perplexity of soul that I had. And the Lord Jesus, yes, being fully man and fully God, as he considers becoming sin, as he considers bearing God's wrath, it is repugnant to his nature and his person. And there is, there is this trouble and anguish of soul. There's no thought of turning back. There's no thought of changing his mind. He makes it so clear there in verse 27. For this purpose I have come to this hour. So my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No. What shall I say? Second option, verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. And then a voice, reading on in verse 28, came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. People standing around hear the voice. Some think it's an angel. Some think it's thunder. The Lord Jesus makes it very clear in verse 30 that this voice has come for your sake, not mine. In other words, the voice has come as a testimony that the Father approves of his Son. That the Father approves of what the Son will do at the cross. That the Father will indeed glorify His Son as His hour approaches. Look specifically at what the Father declares there in verse 28. I have glorified it. Father, glorify Your name. I have glorified it. How? How had the Father already glorified His name? The signs. Seven signs John has recorded and laid out so meticulously, culminating in Christ restoring Lazarus to life. Seven signs that point to God's glory, that declare God's excellence. Father, glorify your name. I have glorified it already. From the moment of your birth to this very moment, you have revealed my glory, declared my majesty, and proclaimed my excellence. But it doesn't stop there. And I will glorify it again. How? It takes us right back to verse 23, doesn't it? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How? At the cross. What specifically is going to happen at the cross whereby the Father will glorify His name in Christ? Look at verse 31. Three things are going to happen there. Now is the judgment of this world. That's number one. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That's number two. And number three, wait for it, verse 32. And I... When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people. The word people or men, perhaps in your translation, isn't there in the original. It's simply all. Will draw all to myself. How are we to understand that? The context, brothers and sisters. What is the context? The Gentiles. We wish to see Jesus. And Christ's response, Christ's focus is his hour. To see me is to see me glorified in my hour. And to see me glorified as I am lifted up from the earth, Calvary's cross, 
And by virtue of my death, vanquishing my foe, Satan, devil, the one who has had the control over the world, the control over the nations. But by my death, I will cast him out. I will rip from him his rule, his authority over the nations. And here's what I will do. I will draw all people, Jew and Gentile, the first fruits as seen in these Greeks who come to see him at the time of Passover. I will draw all people to myself. It's a reiteration, is it not, of what we've already seen in chapter 10, verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. We move now quickly, better be quickly, into the third part of this this discourse. There's a question, verse 34. The crowd has reappeared. They answered him, we have heard from the law, a, a synonym for the Old Testament scriptures. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say? And the Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this? Who is this Son of Man? And so they're perplexed. The Lord Jesus has made a reference to him being lifted up. Obviously, they, they, they've, they've gleaned something in regards to it as being a reference to his death. Well, they know the scriptures. They know that the Old Testament talks about an eternal king, an eternal kingdom. Well, if the, if the Christ is to remain forever, then how can you start talking about lifting up and talking of your death? This isn't making any sense. And on top of that, who is this son of man? So perplexity in this question. So Christ gives a response beginning in verse 35. Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. He doesn't really take on their question, who is this son of man? He doesn't, doesn't enter into the controversy. He's already demonstrated who the son of man is. He doesn't really even hit their question head on either. He just simply reiterates the fact that he is going away. That he, the light of the world, is here. They live in darkness, intellectual darkness, moral darkness, spiritual darkness. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Oh, you're all perplexed about these questions, but you're missing the most important thing. The light is standing here right in front of you while you have the light. Believe in the light. That you may become sons of light. That's the text. I hope that makes some sense to you. There is a request. There is an answer. There is a question. And there is a response. What I want to do in the time remaining this morning is very simple. I think these verses merit a response, an answer on our part to three questions. Three questions that we have to ask in light of this text, and we must answer. The first question is this. Do you see Christ glorified, friend? Do you see Christ glorified? He's glorified in that the glory he had before the incarnation has been restored to him. He's glorified 
in that his human nature has been transformed forever. He's glorified in that he has received the honor that's rightfully his by virtue of his great work. And he is glorified in that having been lifted up and having assumed a position at the Father's right hand, he now sovereignly calls his people from among the nations. Do you see Christ glorified? I have a collection of sermons by Dr. Young given on Isaiah and I think the book of Daniel years ago. He gave these lectures and in it he gives the following illustration. In the city of Damascus in Syria, there's a great mosque which the Muslims regard as one of their most sacred buildings. Along one of the walls of their mosque, there are a number of small shops. If you went there, you could ask one of the shopkeepers for a ladder. Then you could climb up onto the roof, walk right over and touch the wall of the mosque. If you did that, you would find a number of small bushes growing there. Pull back these bushes and you would find the thing for which you were looking. There is an old doorway that is all walled up. And the whole thing has been whitewashed over. But on the lintel of that doorway, there are these words in the Greek language. Thy kingdom, O Christ, is an everlasting kingdom. And thy reign endureth forever and ever. You see, at one time this building was a Christian church. And the true God was worshipped therein. The forces of infidelity have all but obliterated the fact that at one time the true God was worshipped in this building. But Satan is never completely thorough. And these words remain to bear their mute yet eloquent testimony. And so it is. It may seem that the kingdom of the Son of Man has come upon dark days. And that it will perish from the face of the earth. But it is not for us to know discouragement. Let us look at the king and remember that we are members of an eternal kingdom. In the kingdoms of this world, there is darkness and there is unrest. But in the kingdom of the Son of Man, there is peace and life, light and hope. Do you see Christ glorified? The second question is this. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? That comes out, does it not, in verses 35 and 36. You are walking along one of two possible paths this morning. Either you are in the light or you are in the darkness. By birth, by nature, we find ourselves in the darkness, an intellectual darkness whereby we do not grasp eternal reality. A moral darkness whereby we are unable to distinguish our right from our left. And a spiritual darkness by which we are alienated from the life of God. For the Lord Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And to those who believe in him, he becomes the light of life. The third question we need to ask ourselves this morning is this. Do we follow Christ? Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Friends, Christ means what he says. We live in a day, we live in a day in which it is perfectly acceptable 
to profess faith in Christ and then live however I jolly well please. I do not know how we reconcile that with such a text as this. That life, abundant life, and eternal life is only, is exclusively for those who hate their lives in this world. Those who have mortified their ambitions, those who have mortified their perceived needs and perceived rights, those who have mortified self and have made Christ all. Do we follow Christ? James Montgomery Boyce writes, there is a defect, oh, a fatal defect in the life of the church in the 20th century. It's this, a lack of true discipleship for the genuine Christian. Discipleship means forsaking everything to follow Christ. But for many of today's supposed Christians, perhaps the majority, it is the case that while there is much talk about Christ, and even much furious activity that is supposed to be done in His name, there is actually very little following of Christ Himself. And that means that in some circles at least, there is very little genuine Christianity. Oh, how I would take to heart what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. Those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We will never deny self. I will never deny self. I will never be as devoted as I ought. I will never be consumed with following Christ until I am consumed with love for Christ, do I see him this morning? Do you see him? Oh, that we would see Jesus.